2: Hello podcast listeners. A quick reminder before we go to this week's episode that Intelligence Squared is back for in-person discussions and debates from September 2021. If you'd like to come along to our debates on China, net zero, the future of capitalism, or the future of the Labour Party, just go to com slash attend and get your chance to vote in the motions and put your questions to some of the world's leading thinkers on the most important topics of the day. And you'll be able to listen back to your question and the debate on the subsequent podcast. To get tickets, just go to com slash attend. But now let's go to this week's podcast with Victor Meyer Schroenberger and Kenneth Cookier on framing, a guide to thinking in the 21st century.
1: Thank you very much. And uh, it's a great pleasure to be here here, wherever here is, which perhaps that's something we should we should talk about later on, whether in fact COVID has completely reframed what events even are and the whole of time and space. So I'm delighted to introduce to you the two speakers tonight, partly because I really enjoyed their first book, which I'll, I'll come on to in a moment. So uh, we have two of the three authors of this book that we're going to be talking about. We have Victor Meir Schoenberger who is Professor of Internet Governance and Regulation at the Oxford Internet Institute at the University of Oxford, and also a faculty affiliate of the Belfer Centre of Science and International Affairs at Harvard University. So managing a bit of quantum juxtaposition at two different institutions opposite sides of the Atlantic. And we have... Kenneth Kukier, who's senior editor at The Economist, host of its weekly podcast on technology, which is called Babbage, kind of retro name for a a technology podcast, and also an associate fellow at the Saeed Business School at the University of Oxford. So i like to think about the two of you hanging out together in Oxford, although, of course, this last year it's probably quite virtual. Let me talk about this, this book, Framers. One of the things that I found really interesting about it is that I'm really glad to be doing this with Ken and Victor because I really enjoyed their previous book, Big Data, and which you could probably see somewhere on the shelf behind me. In fact, uh, you could, maybe you could virtually sign it through a screen or something for me. But what, the only criticism I had of it really was that I felt it was almost a bit too excited about the way big data was going to change everything, the way artificial intelligence was going to revolutionize everything. It did look a bit about potential pitfalls and, and hazards and so on, but it, but it was slightly one of those books that says this technology is going to change everything in the world. And what I found really interesting about the new book was this seems to be going in a rather different direction. It seems to be kind of saying, well, just hang on a moment. These are the things that AI and big data can't do. So I guess that's probably my first question. And I know the two of you are going to have to do a bit of juggling who answers what. But like, what happened between the first book and the second book that made you kind of take off in this slightly different direction? Was it that you met Francis de Vericourt, the third author, and he said, now I'm going to have to sit you boys down and tell you a few things. So what happens? Tell us the story.
3: Well, it's very perceptive. Why don't I go first and then Victor will pick it up. Uh, it's very perceptive that, that there's a lot of truth to what you say. Uh, big Data came out. It did very well. It did extremely well around the world as well. It sold many copies, particularly in China. And we were very excited because we were, in some ways, the evangelists of a new way of looking at the world through the lens of data. And if we were accused of being a cheerleader, it's because there's a lot to cheer. However, we would hasten to add that we had chapter upon chapter of talking about what we termed the dark side of big data. Among the things we did is we called for the idea of algorithmic auditors, which is something actually that's happening now. And at the time we called for it, it sounded like science fiction, but of course that's the way the industry has gone. But you are right that at its core, we were disappointed that our message was accepted maybe a little bit too much and embraced by people who didn't understand the whole totality of it. We wanted to emphasize the data, but we never wanted to minimize the idea of a model. So we realized, well, we really have to talk about models. And in fact, we were going to talk about mental models. But I'll let Victor take the baton and take it away.
0: Uh, Indeed. And uh, when we looked at uh, 2020, 2021, a lot of people were Dismayed and dissatisfied with uh, human decision making, and said, "You know, we 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 got ourselves into a mess, and uh, with all the biases that human decisions are prone to to follow, we're never going to get ourselves out of this mess. So we need really AI and machines to take over. And when we heard that, we said we need to say something about this because there is a fundamental misunderstanding about the power of human cognition." The, the 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 human power isn't to pick one of two bad options. It is to come up with good options in the first place. And so the real power of decision making isn't to pick which of two bad options one should choose. Machines may be better at that, I don't know. But the human ingenuity, the the cognitive power that we possess is to actually increase the option space and come up with better options. And that is what machines just simply can't do.
1: All right. So the one thing struck me reading this book was that what you've rather brilliantly done is called Framers. It's about creating frames, as you just said, mental models. And you've you've rather brilliantly like made a frame that can then be applied to pretty much anything like any field of life from particle physics to i don't know pandemics the way that the but also it's like human relationships practical problems pretty much any field of life you can name business obviously you can now fit into your like your meta frame of framing which is a piece of writing and, frankly, marketing genius, because I, I couldn't think of anything that you couldn't apply this approach to. It's really, really clever. But you've also managed to give the bones of it very, very simply. So it's, in fact, a kind of meta model that's really easy to take in. So I'm going to be really cheeky now and say, can you, in a minute or two, give us the bones of your thesis, of what the way you describe the process of framing? And so we can get people started on how they might apply it to absolutely everything in their life. I don't know who wants to go first this time. Uh,
0: uh, but- sure. Uh, and Ken uh, is is, is going to cor- uh, correct all the mistakes that I will make. Um, it's, it's very straightforward. We human beings always think in mental models, always think in, in, in a frame, because that's the way that we abstract the world. We, we create a, a mental version of it. And that has been known for a long time. But what we didn't understand for the longest time was that this ability to frame reality to create this mental model is not just a fact of life, but is a muscle, a cognitive muscle that we can use and get better at. So in other words, if we try as humans individually, and hopefully as a society as well, we can become better framers, which means we can generate better options to drive better decisions. And we do that through three C's that we uh, mention in the book called Causality, counterfactuals and constraints. Causality basically means that we have causal templates, causal mental models that we have that connect cause and effect. Sometimes they are wrong, but most of the time they are right. We have counterfactuals, which is we ask what-if questions. We we play the game of life uh, forward a couple of moves in order to imagine what would happen if we make certain choices. And then we constrain our fantasy, our imagination suitably so that we come up not with a myriad of options, but with a small number of really actionable ones.
3: And I pick it up and say, by changing the options that we see, we improve the choices that we actually decide upon, and therefore the outcomes that we get. So by framing, either good framing, or if need be, adjusting the frame or changing the frame outright by reframing, we can actually create new alternatives imagine different futures and achieve those futures. So it's both liberating as well as empowering. It gives us agency in the world and it gives us responsibility to change the world and we can. And the book is actually, of course, as you know, loaded with examples, not just in business, but in areas of society, whereby framing well or reframing, we can get better outcomes in society. And this is, as we argue in the book, the only way we're going to be able to meet our moment in history and respond to the global challenges that press upon us.
1: I, yeah, I was really struck by something. I was just looking for I'd actually written it down, that you link the idea of counterfactuals, of imagining if things were not like this, if we had a different frame, with agency, with choice, with being able to act and do things. You've, I pulled out a little quote, imagining an alternative reality helps us act because it creates a choice. I mean, can you can you give an example of, of how that works? Because it, it's a, it seems to be a slightly different way of looking at agency in action. Usually when we think about choices and decisions, they're things that are kind of forced upon us. Like, well, you know, here's two things you have to choose and quite possibly with insufficient information and not enough time and you have to choose. But what you just what you're describing seems to be something else. I wonder if you could tease it out or if you have any examples
3: let me let me try one which is if we looked at the if if we were to look at the world say the the amazon rainforest and we saw it simply as valuable timber we would say well you know we should for the purpose of economic enfranchisement of the people who live there well we should cut it down but if we actually play out you know, t- mentally time travel and create a mental simulation of the world and think about it in terms of counterfactuals and constraining those counterfactuals, we could imagine that there's different alternatives. We might actually see a world in which, although there is an important value to the timber today, that it also represents the lungs of the planet. And if it represents the lungs of a planet, we would say, well, what are the alternatives that we have? Well, we can probably maybe find another way. We might want to actually pay people to replant, parts of the rainforest that have been destroyed or that needs to be preserved because there's this sort of existential value that's greater than the value of the timber because the value of the, the planet long term. By changing the alternatives that we see, we can actually imagine other outcomes, make better decisions and therefore get better outcomes. Now let's take a look at things like racism. And in America, we're told that, you know, from many parents and well-meaning white parents in particular, have told their children, it's important to be colorblind, right? Just don't see race, don't see color, don't see black and white. And the new thinking that's been going on, particularly by uh, people who study this, sociologists who are of color, say, no, 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 black parents don't say be colorblind to their children. They say, actually be aware of race, be aware of color. And they implore white parents to do the same. They say, don't try to erase it. You think you're doing a good thing, trying to do a good thing by erasing these differences. But actually, go. although it's tense and difficult, go to it, see the colorful, accept the colorful, and accept that there's these differences. Because if not, you're denying the experience of people who are black and therefore have a different interaction with life. If you will, it's about changing how we see the world to change the options of how we might possibly act, make better decisions, get better outcomes, and in this case maybe do a better job of 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 getting rid of the implicit racism in society and it's not such
0: uh, just social problems if you if you take the business world um, and you know ten years ago or so um, some companies were trying to compete against uh, Apple on the music market, on the online music market, by creating also music stores to download music uh, and songs. And they had a really hard time because they only competed at the same options that that Apple and the same uh, conventional options that, that Apple was playing with. Then Spotify came in and said, let's come up with streaming music. You don't need to own music. You don't need to purchase music. You just need to experience music because that's what most people want to do with music. And so they basically created a new option of understanding, dealing and working with music that Apple and all the other competitors that stayed with conventional options didn't go to.
1: This this connects with um, one of the other things I found quite tricky and interesting. That you, I mean, you talk a lot about one of my favourite writers, Hannah Arendt, and you know anyone that likes her is a friend of mine, as far as I'm concerned. But the, one of the things you draw from her is the importance of having a plurality of frames and not only getting stuck in like one frame for everybody who in the world. But at the same time. Elsewhere in the book, you talk about how, in fact, one of the things that frames do is embody or enact our values, and then I think it's a couple of the examples you were just talking about can kind of suggest that that the things that we the things that we value are our moral frameworks, if you like, are reflected in the way we frame other things in the world, which suggests that it's actually quite important to to pick the right frame and not be too relax and not say oh well you know I've got this frame you've got that frame I'm sure they're both fine because surely if you have values that are really important then you you, you should be saying well no actually I've I've spent a long time building a frame on what I consider important moral foundations so I, I I mean I I felt there's quite a lot of the book that deals with this it's obviously quite an important thing how could you give us a little on How how does that play out in practice? You don't want one dominant frame to rule everybody in the world, but at the same time, if frames reflect the values that we have, we also don't presumably want to be just saying, oh, well, you know, (laughs) what was the Groucho Marx, uh, to to paraphrase Groucho Marx, these are my frames and if you don't like them, I have others. How do we how do we deal with that in in the real
0: world? By taking uh, frames really seriously and understanding that they are reflective of our values, um, and <clears throat> that um, they shape the options that we see. But as we argue in the book, with with one important exception, there are no bad frames. There is only bad framing. That is, there is uh, moments situations where we pick the wrong frame for the aim that we want to achieve. Achieve and the context that we want to achieve. A, v- a very quotidian example, we all know that the world is round, so the flat earth frame is not particularly helpful anymore, except, of course, if we measure our living room. Then the flat earth frame is perfectly capable of, of helping us measure the living room. For that context and for that goal, it's good enough. In fact, thinking about the curvature of the earth when we measure our living room would be far too uh, complicated and complex. So what, what we argue in the book, therefore, is that we should cherish both as individuals and as society, a plurality of frames, a repertoire of frames, because it gives us the opportunity to find the right frame for the right situation and the right goal. But doing that requires understanding the values and and finding the right frame for values context and goals that's a challenge that's difficult and it means that we need to understand the frames that we are acquiring to our
3: repertoire quite uh, uh, at, at quite a level of detail i would also just add one thing there is however one exception, as Victor pointed out, and the exception is that we cannot accept frames that deny the existence of other frames. So we should be tolerant of other frames, except in cases in which someone is trying to say that we do not have the right to frame or this frame shouldn't be allowed. That is verboten.
1: So yes, so it's it's kind of another version of the tolerance paradox.
3: Yeah, exactly. And we cite, uh, we we have a beautiful... uh, well, I personally believe it's beautiful. <laughs> um, uh, uh, note on the 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 uh, on Karl Popper's paradox of tolerance, and the reason why I particularly find it beautiful is because, as people may know, uh, this is a little bit of arc- arcane information. Uh, when Karl Popper, in the Open Society and Its Enemies, wrote about the paradox of intolerance. He did so not in the main text, but in the note. And so, in a fitting hat tip to Professor Popper, we also responded to that. Not in the main text, but in a note.
0: And let me add that even for Papa, it was challenging at times to be tolerant and open. His students at LSE famously called his course Open Society and Its Enemies, Open Society by Its Enemy.
1: <laughs> well, it's I'm sorry you haven't resolved that age-old problem in a single paragraph. But, uh, but yes, it's, I did think it was an interesting thing in the book that this idea we need to be open to other frames, but... Uh, at the same time, have a sense, perhaps, that some are, are are more fruitful than others, or more valuable than others. But I think the context thing is interesting and important. In fact, is that you you talk about when you talk about reframing, uh, which is obviously part of this being open to changing your your point of view on on things. Do, would you like to? Talk us through that in, in a little more detail, because I could be uncharitable here and say, now, hang on, you, you're calling this reframing and make it very grand. Aren't you just saying sometimes you have to look at things in a new way and go, huh, that's not working. Let's think about that again. So so what, what have you put in this book that's actually more than just that?
3: Let me start and let Victor pick it up. Let me just press you on this, uh, Tamandra, because... Let's think about it. Often, people organizations do need to look at things in a different way, and the, their failure, with calamitous consequences, is that they don't. Let me give you the example of two countries and a pandemic. You, you can probably fill in the blanks. At the outset of COVID, last March, 2020, even actually in February, New Zealand looked at what was going on in Italy and realized that it's it's it, this is going to go everywhere, and they framed it as SARS. They were in the Asia Pacific anyway, and that's where SARS had hit. They were at all the meetings uh, with Taiwan and South Korea and others who had developed incredibly good public health networks in order to monitor for disease and actually had a plan in to staunch it in case pandemics were to emerge. By framing it as an issue of SARS, a pandemic, take it seriously, they opted for an elimination strategy. Britain and America very famously had leaders who framed it as the sniffles, as the seasonal flu. Boris Johnson announced very happily that he went to a hospital with people and shook everyone's hand. And of course, he came down with it and almost perished. He was put on life support and a ventilator. He framed it as the seasonal flu. And therefore, the options he saw in the decision he took was all about mitigation, taking basic steps to mitigate the problem, not eliminate it. By last June, Britain had suffered one of the worst calamities of any country measured by the population while at the same time New Zealand on that very same day New Zealand had declared themselves covid free they both leaders had the exact same data they framed it differently They chose different options and therefore they different outcomes. So I wouldn't sniff at this idea that we might need to reframe an issue. I think part of the problems that we have, whether it's the rise of populism on one side, the fact that we're not responding to climate change on another, is a failure of people and institutions to not reframe.
1: I suppose by being a bit cheeky there, what I was hoping for was something, because you obviously do spend a bit more time. It's not just a whole chapter going, sometimes you have to look again. But, you know, you do actually spell out a bit more of a method. So I, I was hoping you might draw that out a bit more. I mean, I have to say, just in the interest of fairness, quite apart from New Zealand and Britain being rather different countries, so the context is important here, but Britain was prepared for pandemic flu. It wasn't just seasonal flu. Unfortunately, not only was it not actually prepared, but it's then it turned out that COVID is not pandemic flu. It is indeed, as you say somewhat closer to SARS so but but I think this, this is an interesting point though same data different framing it, I mean the, you give quite a nice example I think in there of uh, Lisa Meitner the mathematician and her is it her nephew the, the physicist yes. who gets shown some data that's uh, I cannot remember maybe you can sure. remember the exact pe- people involved sure. go Victor tell us the sure. story because I think it's quite a nice story about that
0: Perhaps uh, one of the world's most famous chemists, uh, Otto Hahn in Germany, was doing an experiment and suddenly, uh, as he was manipulating substances, uh, saw a surge of energy, a, a huge surge of energy. And this, he couldn't explain it with chemistry. It wasn't a chemical reaction. And he c- couldn't understand it. So he wrote to his uh, former colleague, Lise Meitner, a physicist who had emigrated uh, to Sweden, had to leave Germany because of the Nazis. When Lise Meitner read the letter, she immediately understood this wasn't a chemical reaction. This was nuclear fission. This was a physical reaction. This was atoms breaking up and a chain reaction uh, happening. And she wrote back, she also uh, published a paper on it and coined the term nuclear fission. Unfortunately, unfortunately... Otto Hahn won the Nobel Prize for it, and Lisa Meitner, who actually saw all of it and saw it when Hahn didn't, was nominated for the Nobel Prize 48 times and never got it because of misogynist.
1: Well, I think that's, that's then a great example of reframing to understand science, and a very bad example of framing in terms of who does what in society. So two examples rolled into one. Indeed,
0: and and even as we are understanding the accomplishments of major framers, we also need to understand that sometimes we need to reframe who we think is the hero and who we uh, who isn't. And the same is as we describe in our book, uh, Global Warming. More than a hundred years ago, um, the, the the first inkling of it uh, being discovered by uh, Miss Footy, who uh, wasn't even permitted to present her findings at the conference of the American Association for the Advancements of Science because she was a female.
3: It's interesting. I, a, a lot of reviewers have picked up on the fact that our book has probably more women as heroes of framers than men. And they've asked us, is that deliberate? And we just kind of shrug our shoulders. And we say, maybe. <laughs>
1: yeah. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep pulling you back to this reframing, not because I'm trying to show that you don't talk about it, but because you do actually, you are a bit methodical about it. You don't just say, don't get too stuck reframe often reframe often you actually do give some pointers as to how people can go about doing that so would you like to just you know briefly talk us through that so again it's a it's a little a, a, I don't know, a handbook, a, a handy guide to how to reframe when you feel you're stuck. Uh,
0: uh, let me start off and, and make two points here. One is, indeed, we talk about three different strategies of how to reframe, basically picking a frame from one's repertoire, a, a frame that we already have in mind, or uh, trying to repurpose a frame from a different context and, and try to make it work in a, in, in a, in a new context, uh, which is what we are calling a re- repurposing or coming up with a completely new frame, a reinvention, as we call it. Now, w- what is really important, though, and we we try to make that explicit is and very explicit is that every act of reframing is very risky, incredibly risky. And in fact, if we do a reinvention that has come up with a completely new frame, it's riskier than risky. It's super risky. And so we spend a lot of time in the book explaining that even though we humans love successful reframers, we kind of think that they're geniuses, the, the power that we all possess with far lower risk is actually to play with counterfactuals with constraints and inside the frames that we already have. Our existing frames are far more flexible, adaptable and therefore useful than we may think. And that is a a mechanism, a quotidian mechanism that we all possess that's far less risky and far more actionable than this dramatic moment of reframing.
1: So is that that a, a plea to not go straight for grand theories but in fact, to try and try and look from a slightly different angle or use a frame that's worked before somewhere else, but adjust it.
3: And that's precisely right. In fact, we cited that it's almost like the Occam's razor version of looking at the world, which is you want to aim for simplicity. And if you do need to change it, you should be cautious and, and adjust the minimal change principles, as we put it out there. You should address, adjust counterfactuals and constraints to the minimal extent possible rather than the most
2: maximal extent. code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes there's also a producer, a production team and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting,
1: a frame not just as a mental model but Mm. that sometimes an actual physical model so not just a mental simulation but to create a simulation in which you can practically test whether this is really going to be a good way to approach this or whether the stuff that you haven't thought of in your new wonderful framing.
0: Uh, Indeed the the the, the danger is also as we think inside our frame uh, that we we think the most powerful element is imagination is sort of this free flowing ideas when in fact the most powerful element, the most important element are the constraints, are the limitations because by limiting our dreaming we give it purpose and we give it direction and sometimes we need to actually materialize those constraints so we, we we talk, for example, about the the raid, uh, the Israeli raid uh, in Entebbe to free the hostages in the 1970s. And in order to train for that and to play it out and to play through various scenarios and what ifs, uh, the Israeli military actually built a kind of replica of the Entebbe airport to not just train the people, but to play through and ask themselves, what would we do if this happens? What would we do if that happens? In order to come up with the most powerful counterfactuals. But they couldn't do it without materializing, that is creating a physical representation of the constraints like the walls and the the, the windows and the distances that they had to cover and so forth. I'd simply add that uh,
3: that was one of our more delightful uh, sort of Vignettes that we reported because we, I had the opportunity to meet one of the commandos who participated in the raid and hear from him firsthand about how they did their training. Uh, although it's so important to be able to materialize and add the physicality to it, I would point out that the other thing I learned through writing the book uh, with Victor and Francis is the importance of mental rehearsals because, of course, it's great to be able to train for situations like that with physicality, like a flight simulator, if you will, But what's really incredible and the thing that's changed how I interact in my life is this idea of mental rehearsals, rehearsals of doing something 500 times before the actual showtime that you have to do it. Like, you know, as you can probably guess, I've prepared for the last three weeks, you know, every waking moment for this interview on Intelligence Squared with you so that I can play through the, the reality of life with counterfactuals and all the permutations and iterations that might take place.
1: How's that going? Are we are we within your model still?
3: I'm failing abjectly, but I still ha- I still hold out hope.
1: <laughs> well, on that note, well, let's throw in something none of us could possibly predict, which is the first question from the audience. So I, again, I shall I shall leave it to the two of you to sort out who wants to come in first. But I think you'll probably both have something to say, and in a sense, it, it takes us slightly back to where we began this conversation. So in Homo Deus, Harari suggests that an AI altered human will have the same relationship, will be to Homo sapiens what Homo sapiens are to Neanderthals. So that suggests that AI will create options. What 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 do you think about this? So so the idea that, in fact, AI will open up our, our field of what's possible. Victor, you're dying to come in.
0: Two important points here. One is uh, that AI, uh, AI can permutate through potentialities, but these become very, very large very, very quickly. And we've, we've seen it in so many different instances. For for example, we talk in the book um, about uh, autonomous driving and how Google uh, is creating virtual worlds in which virtual cars drive to create training data for their autonomous driving vehicles. And uh, they're creating tens of thousands of different scenarios. But it turns out the computer isn't generating those scenarios. It's humans that come up with those scenarios or those spectacles spectrums of scenarios, and the the machine then permutates through them. If we would let the machine do it on its own, without the mental model... Behind it, it would become incredibly vast. In fact, in the book, we, we also use another example, a famous example in the history of AI of a robot who, who goes through millions and millions and millions of permutations in order to defuse a bomb. And before he, the, the robot uh, can't actually f- find the way out to defuse the bomb, the bomb actually explodes. Because every decision has a certain timeline. It needs the options need to be actionable. I can create a gazillion million options, but I can't make them actionable in a, a short period of time. And so uh, that is why machines uh, have a fundamental difficulty in framing reality. And that is why uh, Homo
3: Deus will not be like Homo sapiens. The, um, I, no, I think, you say, I think you said it beautifully. I would just simply reiterate the fact that um, we, can, we can get counterfactuals and causality and constraints from AI, but it would be meaningless. And if, first, if we have it, it's because human beings put it in there. But secondly, if you want a counterfactual from artificial intelligence, sure, it'll give you half a trillion in two thirds of a second, but they won't be the meaningful ones. The search space will be too vast. The point about human beings is that we can actually focus on those things that actually are relevant in time.
1: I mean, this is a really key theme at the start of the book, isn't it? That, is it Halicin, the new uh, antibiotic that yeah. is created by an AI, by a research team that say, we've kind of tried all the obvious things for antibiotics. Let's set this computer to work on the non-obvious things. But but you you use this instead of saying, and this is why AI is so clever. You instead use that as a way of jumping off to say what humans do and AI can't do. So tell me more about that.
3: Absolutely. So Regina Barzilay is an artificial intelligence professor at MIT and she's in her early 40s and has been thinking about how to apply artificial intelligence to medicine, in part because she had a, a terrible experience with cancer and survived it and it changed the shape of her research. And so she looked at drug discovery and realized there were some opportunities here to use it. And so she designed a new methodology that wasn't actually going to look at the structure of what compounds might work to have antimicrobial properties, but to look only at the function, whether it actually had these properties or not. And by doing so, she was able to identify certain compounds that would actually work, but not work in the same way as other antimicrobial uh, compounds, Because, of course, if it worked in the same way, it probably would have resistance. But if it worked in an entirely different way, it wouldn't. So she comes up with it. She identifies this new compound that they called Hallison, after Hal from Space Odyssey. Stanley Kubrick, the computer that runs amok. They're, of course, at MIT, t- tempting fate. And so we, what we love about this is that, and as we point out at the beginning of the book, you know, around the world, literally headlines in the newspaper, including the Financial Times, says, you know, AI discovers new antibiotic. And so to tease Regina Barsley in an interview, I say, so it looks like an AI did all of the work. The AI discovered this new thing. And of course, she went ballistic, saying, no, 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 in a friendly way, because I was teasing her. And she knew that. I said, no, 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 of course, it was humans. Humans were able to do this. And, th- and she explained to me patiently exactly how they had a different approach. They had a new mentality. They reframed how they were going to go about and set about working in one frame, but also seeing new possibilities and new alternatives and actually executing on them. So what I liked about that and why we chose it as the beginning was it was a perfect way of leading people to see one thing, but to show them the other and to explain, as Regina Barsley told us, that in fact, human beings were behind it. And the reason for the success was because human beings saw it in a different way.
1: Okay, so I'm, I'm going to tag on a kind of meta question here because those kind of headlines you've described, it says, you know, AI does this and AI does that, AI gets us to Mars, AI solves this problem, whatever it is. They're, they're very common. And, and I think there is definitely a stream of thought that says, as you were kind of saying at the beginning of it, to say, well, look, humans have messed up. Let's let the machines take over because they are much smarter than us and they're unbiased, objective and so on. Is that not in itself a kind of framing? Is that not a framing that says here is here is life and basically you've got irrational, messy humans over here and incredibly clever, objective, all-wise, unsullied by human sin and desire AI over here. And therefore, the more that they do, the less that we do, the, the better things are. So... Have you not described a kind of meta-framing problem, that we need a framing that includes framing?
0: Basically, what we're describing is that we need an understanding of the plurality of frames or of the plurality of standpoints viewpoints as uh, Hannah Arendt famously said the, the problem with uh, the hyper rationalists isn't that they are advancing a hyper rationalist frame but that they only can see the world through that very frame and that they deny almost the existence of outer frames or at least the validity of many other frames they they they, they see the singularity as beckoning and th- that is enormously, confining and narrowing in their focus. And they would actually be uh, better off understanding that sometimes other frames are, are, are better. That is why we are suggesting both for individuals, as well as for society, diversity of frames and plurality uh, of, of, of framing is uh, crucial and important.
1: We've actually got a, a question in from the audience that Slightly picks up on that. Uh, The questioner says, what role do you see media and social media play in framing debates and pushing narratives? Does it condition the options? Does it constrain the options or does it create more options to choose from?
3: It's really problematic. Why don't I take a first crack at that? And, well, media and social media are so different. So let's look at the media first. Media is in a crisis. It's a financial crisis. And therefore, it's also a crisis of quality and output. It's, I, I don't think there's ever been a good moment in which we could look at a media and say, yes, we have it nailed. This is what we should go back to. It's always been in a process of, of betterment. And thank goodness for that but although now it feels like it's actually going retrograde. And, so, and, and, I, and I think there's some objective measures to say that it is. In certain ways, it absolutely certainly is. I think there's extraordinary work at the high end, I think, that the median may have sunk a bit. And so and particularly for the news that people see on a day-to-day basis, it's a problem. And what would reform it would be, in the, in the context of framing, would be to produce material that stresses not a conflict And a conflict of frames, but to actually show multiple frames working in tension for productive output—that is so different. Can you imagine instead of a CNN show, which is called Crossfire, uh, we called it, you know, Melding, right? In which you have two sides battling it out, and so if you've got this Hegelian, you know. Person at the end who strokes his chin and says, "I think there is a synthesis we can have here in which we take the best of the left and the best of the right. We will not have a hard brexit at all. We will redefine Britain in the European Union, and everyone will be happy. I hope you like my, my Hegel so Th- that to me would be the way to do it. And in the book, we talk about how education is being changed in this way by a guy named Joel Podolny, who used to be the dean at the Yale School of Management, who was wooed by Steve Jobs to teach and teach the youngins at Apple University. And what he's actually teaching them is what he the reforms that he was doing at Yale, which is to to make the basis of education, teaching multiple ways of seeing the issues, multiple ways of framing as the mechanism by which we do better in life by identifying our problems and making decisions by thinking about the alternatives before we actually decide. And that's great. For social media, we would do something similar in which we don't want conflict and the clash uh, and a winner-take-all mechanism, but want to expose people to different ways of looking at the world in a respectful way and try to encourage sort of a respectful tolerance, a pluralism, rather than the sort of mercenary Manichaean view of the world that we have now where i have to win and you have to lose
1: i i must say i've made a couple of radio series that attempted to do exactly that but apparently they haven't changed the world so <laughs> what happened there time. Uh, and, <laughs> there's actually and there's actually another related question which is it kind of goes back to this difficulty of tolerance if we are to accept all frames as legitimate How do we handle a frame that challenges widely agreed moral values? For example, a frame which says, it's good to murder for pleasure. Surely there are boundaries to acceptable frames. And then this throws us back to this question like, well, if there are boundaries, who sets them and how? Victor, answer the big time question.
0: It's a very important question. And in the book, we make clear that because we ha- we all have certain values, our society also subscribes to values, we may want to interdict or constrain or limit certain the application of certain frames. But as we do that, and if we have good reason to do that, we also need to understand that whenever we eradicate a frame or whenever we... D- uh, ban a frame from public discourse, um, th- we impoverish that discourse just a little bit. Now, it may be absolutely worth it. It may be w- or, or worth uh, this uh, slight impoverishment because we further our fundamental societal values. But we need to understand that perhaps our answers to the challenges that we are facing may be not as comprehensive as they would, would be otherwise. And this is a, if you want, a balancing act, a trade-off that we need to understand and, and we need to consciously take. I think it's perfectly okay to enforce values in our society, but we need to understand that that has consequences.
1: And interestingly, again, another related question. I, I love it, audience, when you pick up, I don't know if you pick up each other's thoughts or if you are somehow as one, in spite of being geographically scattered, What? If, and this actually is a contributor, in fact, from Sao Paulo in Brazil. What if we are blind to some issues and leave them out of our frame? It happened before so many times, dot, dot, dot. And that's, I think, again, related to that point of... Perhaps that, in fact, is, is, is the answer, which is if you don't, if you, if you don't know what you're missing out then your frames are going to be impoverished, even though you feel that they are morally good. And
0: and, and, and the point that we're uh, also making in the penultimate chapter, when we talk about Hannah Arendt and Judith Schlar, is that w- what we need in order to tackle some of those pressing challenges in our society is a pluralism of frames, a wide variety of cognitive uh, models that we are using. And how can we achieve this? how can we create the the fertile crown for this pluralism of frames? One way of doing that is to look for cultural and socioeconomic diversity because essentially what it means is that you know different people start from different starting points to climb up the the the, the mountains and they may reach the the, the summit while others uh, will will be stuck at the lower summit or uh, a lower mountaintop. If we are all starting at the same point with the same background, we all take the same route up the mountain – what if it's the wrong route? And so to protect against that, particular in, particularly in times of change, contextual change, significant change, we need to broaden our approach. It's what nature does. When it's faced uh, with potential extinction, it tries to have a thousand different flowers bloom in the hope that one variation of it, one mutation of it, finds its evolutionary niche to survive and succeed
1: yeah it reminded me of that old joke about the person saying how do i get to how do i get to manchester from here and the answer is well i wouldn't start from here (laughs) but perhaps that's perhaps that's true perhaps if you have a lot of people starting from different points then we we work out a number of different routes and some of them work better than others uh, it's actually here's a question that in fact comes from a different <laughs> from a different starting point. so let's uh, let's let's reframe you, see how you get on with this. Uh, they do start off saying they're looking forward to reading the book. and I'd say I have read it and it's definitely worth reading. I wonder how much overlap there is with disciplines like NLP or behavioral economics. Um, I'm assuming that is neurolinguistic programming. Rather than natural language
0: processing. <laughs> your frame, which your just frame. goes
1: to show that context is everything here. Anyway, behavioral economics, I think we can all agree what that is. So, uh, does, is there a lot of overlap with behavioral economics, do you think?
3: Uh, I'll start. Uh, there's a little bit, of course, uh, the, the framing of, we cite Kahneman for the framing effect, and it's, there's obviously part of the reason why we're talking about this is that there are decision biases in the world that people are anchored on and that leads to problems but we very quickly i mean we just we we mentioned this in passing because we have to be aware of it and put it in our peripheral vision but very quickly we say that that's something else and it's not what we're talking about and then we're sort of looking at mental models and saying that too often the conversation about decision making is focused on behavioral psychology, Kahneman, at all, and although it's th- that's very important to understand and appreciate, because of that, not enough attention has been focused on the issue of mental models and framing, and so we we focus our fire on that. And we, and as Victor said at the outset, the point is not to be better at making a decision between A and B, it's about framing an issue so that your decision is between A, B, C, D, and E, and that C, D, and E you get because you've done a better job of framing.
1: So but if we want to make better decisions we should spend more time weighing up if you like how to make our list of options than we do choosing between them. So can can making models help us overcome things like the, the everyday biases and the lazy decision-making that
0: Kahneman talks about a lot. Y- yes. Now, we, we can't eradicate the biases, but by coming up with better options, we are not limiting ourselves to just looking at two options in the hope of finding the, the best solution by choosing from two bad options. What we're doing is that we have three perhaps better options. And then we may be biased to pick one over the other. But if they're all three better ones, we are actually better off. And Kahneman actually is contributed hugely to our understanding of, of our human weaknesses, and our human biases. But at the end of the day, he also his focus on just the decision moment is also a frame. It's a it's a it's a particular frame that we should focus on that decision moment, and we say that is a frame. But there is another frame, and that other frame is let's not focus on the decision moment. Let's focus on the options before that, because that is not only something that is a a, a bigger lever and and gives us more leverage, but it's also something that we humans tend to be good at. And so why not use something that we are good at rather than fret over something we're bad
1: at. You do seem to describe I think somewhere early in the book you say there is one model of decision making which is this kind of rational go through the options weigh up weigh up factors and come to a rational conclusion about what is the optimum decision for this goal. And then you say but that's not actually what decision making is like decision making is much more like I am I live in a world of my own creation essentially I have a mental model of the world that I live in and in fact so when I make decisions I'm acting within that world and what I can do is change my mental model so almost you almost need to be suggesting that we can change the world that we live in in our minds to change the way we act is that am i pushing it too far
3: no you've got a hole in one that's exactly right and that's and that is a revolution in cognitive science that this basic feature of cognition can be transformed from a natural thing that humans do to get on with the world to a tool we can deliberately use to improve how we make decisions and the outcomes we get in the world that is should be a front page story every day
1: on that note, I'm going to go to what I think maybe the last audience question we have time for. Schopenhauer once said, you can choose what you want, but you cannot choose to want. Your point on framing seems to presuppose that all options are within the grasp of our imagination.
0: They're not. Uh, and we are quite cognizant of that. We all see the world through our particular lens through the lens that that, that that we bring to the table. But we can go beyond the conventional, beyond the obvious. We can push ourselves. And in fact, even as toddlers, we begin to push ourselves. As research has shown, one and a half year olds, two year olds, when they engage in pretend play, what they are doing is to create counterfactual worlds, to create what-if realities in order to play the game of of life, a couple of moves ahead. And and so uh, Alison Gopnik, one of the researchers that did phenomenal work in this particular area, called the toddlers the research and development department of humanity. We unfortunately, as we grow older, give up on it or sort of forget Doing it, and so as Gopnik says, we become the sales and marketing department of humanity. And uh, in that sense, it, the 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 question, of course, points correctly out that not all of the options are available to us, but more options than we think are available to us at any given point in time. And that's a tremendous a tremendously empowering moment to realize.
1: I wanted to ask. I, first of all, I wanted to name check. You have not only have you named Hannah Arendt, but you also describe one of my favourite books as a brilliant example of the use of constraints, which is uh, Dr Seuss's Green Eggs and Ham. So, if you would like to briefly say what is the importance of Green Eggs and Ham as an example of framing.
3: Sure, so Theodore Seuss Geisel, uh, Dr. Seuss, was challenged by his publisher whether he could actually write a book with only fifty one syllable words, and he hated this assignment, but because he was challenged, he couldn't actually but resist, and so he did, and so he came up with the with but using this constraint of of these words, he came up with forty nine words that had one syllable
1: and one word anywhere, which is fifty that's. That's genius. I do not like to write a book. I do not like it now. But look, uh, and actually, one thing I'm really intrigued by, I know we don't have time to go into it, is how did you write this book? Because there's three of you. And I don't know whether you had it finished before Covid or if you've had to do it remotely. I have written with other people. But to write a book like this, that's so concise and clear with three people, how on earth did you do it?
3: Very quickly, I'll say that it's not that we wrote one third, one third, one third. We wrote 100 percent, 100 percent and 100 percent and it became a different book.
1: OK, uh, that's I hope you keep me the secret there, but you didn't. But we are we are running out of time, so I will have to leave my curiosity unsatisfied and thank you both of you very much. This is really, really, really interesting. And I I genuinely do recommend this book. Uh, There's a lot in it, and it will help you think differently about the world. And thank you very much, Ken and Victor, for a really interesting hour. And thank all of you for being with us. Sorry, it's not in person, but, you know, on a mental level, you're with us. Thanks for the questions. Thank you.